If you live 80% of your time when you're at home in your house or in some other building, how much would you pay for a fresh pound of air? Would it be a dollar, two dollars? How much would it be? That's Jim Freyhut, an expert in building science and indoor air quality. No, it's just automatically fresh, they assume. I said, yeah, well, people used to think water was automatically fresh as well. And now we're realizing that what we ingest into our bodies can cause long-term chronic problems. And certainly that's true of air. So why aren't we emphasizing purification of air and be willing to pay for it? Jim is an associate professor of architectural engineering at Penn State University, where he's part of the school's Institute for Energy and Environment. Today, Jim shares his holistic approach to building science and efficiency and explains why indoor air quality requires not only a technical shift, but a cultural shift too. I'm Rasha Hassanin, and you're listening to Healthy Spaces with Trained Technologies, a series of conversations that explores the world of indoor environmental quality from the inside out. When Jim began his career as an academic, his original intent was to focus on indoor air quality issues that can cause chronic health problems like allergens, mold, and spores. However, pretty early on, it became apparent to Jim that the science of buildings can't be compartmentalized. Buildings really aren't designed, constructed, and operated as whole systems as other aspects of our uh, infrastructure are. For example, transportation systems, automobile system, the commercial aircraft system, manufacturing systems as a whole are, are always treated as a integrated design process. Buildings aren't. Buildings have been fragmented for various reasons, both in their design, construction, design of equipment that goes into the building. So it's very difficult to look at it as a building as a whole integrated system and simultaneously optimize its performance in terms of energy efficiency and indoor air quality and comfort performance. And it leads to problems in terms of systematic lack of progress in improving the efficiency and actually measurably improving the indoor environment. As I knew what was going to happen and what did happen is we wound up running into energy constraints. In other words, I can make an indoor environment really clean and really healthy, but I can't afford it, either in terms of the initial equipment or the actual operation of the equipment. And so the trick is, how do I arrive at an indoor air quality in a reasonably cost-effective way and measurably improve its performance relative to what's been going on in the past? It may seem intuitive that we should think about buildings as a whole, but this approach has only really been pioneered in recent years. Why? Well, according to Jim, it's not just the study of buildings that needs to be more integrated. The industry as a whole is very fragmented in terms of architectural design, architectural engineering, design of equipment to meet the needs of a building's operational uh, footprint. All those are very different players, and they don't really talk together in an integrated fashion to come up with an optimal design for a building. There's been a lack of uh, government oversight. I mean, who do you oversee? Do you oversee the the architects and make them responsible for design? The architect will say, well, I designed it, but they didn't build it that way. The construction guy, the architectural engineering guy will say, well, I couldn't build it that way because no one could afford that building if I built it the way you said it. it should be built. So the government 
can do this in other industries because there's there's an integrator. There is a systems integrator that can be held responsible. That's not the case in the building industry. So it's very difficult to establish regulations or policies that can have a significant impact on the industry because the industry is so fragmented. But you can't concentrate on one indoor uh, aspect of indoor air quality and not talk about the building as a system as a whole. It's absolutely critical and and not just the air, right? You know, when you think about the building system, you've got lighting, you've got thermal comfort, you've got acoustics, et cetera. So obviously the whole system makes a difference. That tends to exacerbate situations like the current pandemic, right? I don't know how many different companies have contacted architecture engineering at Penn State in one way or another saying, well, what do we do about this pandemic, this virus in indoor environments? This has raised the public's consciousness of the dangers of having poor indoor air quality. This is a pretty extreme case, but if you take a look at indoor air quality over the years, there's been a lot of indoor air quality problems that have resulted in very serious problems for people, indoor allergens. Uh, certain chemicals uh, in indoor environment can cause chronic disease. It's just that it happens in a more gradualistic fashion. Uh, influenza. Every year we have an influenza season and influenza viruses are transmitted in indoor environments, especially school systems and other types of buildings because the air is not really properly treated to remove the viruses. And we just kind of learn to live with people getting sick and a certain fraction of people dying every year. But now that we have this really malignant virus, it's highly transmittable, the problem becomes much more obvious. But it was, it's been there for years. And we just sort of accepted it as uh, almost like it's almost like a gravity. If you did that in other industries, you'd be out of business in terms of, well, yeah, a certain number of people are going to die this year because we don't mandate seatbelts or we don't require any lock, lock brakes. And those things are built, designed, constructed, and maintained as a system. And we don't do that in buildings. So to really address some of these chronic health problems, and it's not just this particular pandemic thing, it's the typical yearly uh, flu season, it's indoor allergens that cause a great deal of allergic response and disease development in the form of asthma in young children and even adults. That goes on, and we have a certain number of chronic cases and deaths every year from that. They're highly related to indoor environment conditions. It's more difficult to deal with in building systems because of the fragmented nature of the building systems, but it's no less important. So it's really imperative that we learn to to address buildings as whole systems. Absolutely, Jim. And I think some of it too is as a lot of this stuff has has been mandated in the transportation industry, it's not just that vehicles themselves have been designed both safer and more efficient, but the way we use those vehicles has shifted to become safer and more effective. And it feels as though because the negative ramifications in the transportation industry are so immediate, right? A crash is immediate and a lot of times devastating. 
Whereas a lot of the issues with indoor air quality are more chronic and over time and they can't be attributed to one thing. It's almost like a boiling frog syndrome, right? Like here we are, we're sitting in water and the, you know, the water is heating up and we don't realize we're boiling. And then at some point there's a boil over and you're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? And it feels like the current pandemic is creating that situation for us. As we think about the holistic system and the need to have this level of integration between sort of fragmented players, maybe you can comment a little bit on the role of digital technology in healthy and efficient buildings. I did a little study before in terms of how is digital technology and information technology sensors and controls and electronics used in the building industry compared to other industries. And the building industry does use these technologies, but at a very, very low density compared to other systems, compared to an automobile system, a manufacturing system, an airplane system. Cars, it's amazing. You'll have 100, 200 sensors. You'll have maybe 1,000 readings per second. All that information is immediately transferred into the operating system, and the performance of the car and the safety situation of the car is optimized. We don't even do that in a very slow frame of reference. We don't even take enough measurements in building to really operate. We have similar type of measurements and sensors, in, but very few of them compared to those industries. And the information technology coordination within the building is not that good. For example, um, you can have very sophisticated LED, uh, light-emitting diode lighting systems in buildings. And that, that's a good example in terms of improvement in energy efficiency of electricity to light, going from the incandescent bulb to the fluorescent bulb to LED bulbs, and measuring the light and putting sensors in the building and say, well, I don't need, I don't need light in this uh, part of the building because I have daylight. Those sorts of things are done with separate systems in the building. The air conditioning system, the lighting system, the ventilation system, they're only really crudely coordinated in terms of the amount of uh, readings that are taken, how that information is analyzed in real time, and then how the system as a whole and the parts of the system are coordinated to give you the best overall building system performance. It's very difficult to get the subsystems to talk to each other in a coordinated fashion, and much less to, to optimize their performance as a whole. It's a very difficult problem that the building industry really needs to address much more aggressively. Agreed, Jim. And I think there's different aspects as well, right? There's the operation of the building, but then there's also the digital integration of the original design of the building as well. The mechanical system and the architectural system for building design are all completely separate and they talk to each other, but we're still very heavily reliant on what I like to call human sigma or human optimization to figure that out. There's some modeling, but I don't think, a, you know, very, very few companies are doing full-scale digital simulations or digital twin of a building before it's built. So I think there's plenty of opportunity here to learn from other industries. There's a push in the building industry now to do, do what they call BIM to BIM, building information modeling, where you digitize the entire building, digitize all its important subsystems, uh, read in the characteristics, the response characteristics of those subsystems, and then try to read all that information and digital data into a, a simulation program that will simulate how the building performs. Here's the problem. 
The problem is because the building system has been so in, disintegrated for a while, there was no one driving that overall systems modeling and use of digital information to optimize those design tools. There was no one saying, okay, here's my digital design, here's my simulation. They build the building and then there was no data fed back to say, well, how well did I do? Was it really very good? Uh, did my predictions come out right? Or how far off were they? Were, were they off in the lighting system? Were they off in the uh, ventilation system? Were they off in the air conditioning system? That sort of methodology would be totally out of the question in the automobile airplane industry. You design this thing as a system, you go and you take all this data from actual real operating systems and you feed it back into the design models and the design methodology. That's why they know when they design the next model, they're not going to be very far off. Don't get me wrong. Every building's a little different. I'm not building 40 million of the same kind of car or a thousand of the same kind of airplane. That just means you have to go to a little higher level of abstraction in your design methodology. My point is we haven't begun to think this through in terms of how am I going to get this hardware in a loop, this feedback mechanism into our design methodologies. I'm not even using digital information to the extent that it should be used now. And even when we have some these sort of technologies, I use the lighting example, which is a great example, right? We've evolved from incandescence to fluorescence to LEDs. And now we've got sensors that tell us I can turn it on, I can turn it off. But LEDs being inherently dimmable and inherently sort of designed, a lot of our systems, even just for LED lights, don't take the full advantage of some of this newest technology. And a lot of the way we take advantage of that technology is through digital applications, right? And so absolutely, I think there's we've got a ways to go. And it's and I think as we go down this journey, we're going to see some really great improvements in building performance. Yeah, I mean, I can give you examples where people are trying to improve the energy efficiency of their, their large commercial buildings and they change the lighting system out. And the lighting system itself becomes much more efficient. And so they use less energy for the lighting. But what happened was these new lights give off so little heat. So what happens is that they underdesign the heating system in the winter. That's unacceptable. You can't improve the subsystem performance of one subsystem and then say, oh, well, okay, now I got to use more energy in this other system because I don't know how these two systems interact with each other in the actual dynamic operation of the building. You know, I always tell my students, you know, um, people will say, well, this isn't rocket science or this isn't aerospace. No, it's not. It's actually a lot more difficult because every building is a little bit unique. So you actually have to have a more robust and a more uh, higher level of abstraction in your design process. But you also have to be able to read data back in from actual cases to improve that design methodology. So it's actually much more difficult. But more important of all the ener prime energy, in this country, 40% of it is used in buildings, only about 30% in uh, transportation systems and then the rest in manufacturing systems. So our buildings are using more prime energy than any other infrastructure sector in the country. And yet it's been the slowest to improve, both from an energy efficiency and a, a performance perspective. So, yeah, it's more difficult, but we got to do it. You know, New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Chicago, all big cities realize that if they're going to reduce their carbon footprint as a municipality, it's the buildings they got to really work on. So the municipalities are saying, well, we need, need to do this as a municipality. So they start benchmarking buildings. 
comparing one building to another building. What can I do to this building to improve its performance, et cetera? That's a, a step in the right direction. But we've got to really accelerate this process by our design methodologies and our ability to redesign an existing building to maximize its performance from uh, energy and from an indoor air quality. And if we keep designing buildings and operating buildings like we've done over the last 150 years, there's no way we can address the carbon footprint. Yeah, no, no, completely agree. You mentioned your students a couple of times, and I'd love to hear a little bit more from you around some of the cultural elements and the cultural barriers to really thinking about systems in this way. What are you hearing from your students in the classroom? Are they focused on sustainability? Is this something that you're seeing a shift in? Or, you know, tell us a little bit about what you're hearing in in your classroom around the topic. Yeah, that's an interesting point. What's emerged since I've been here is there is a real concern about young people, about sustainability environment, just in terms of resource allocation, fair allocation of resources, climate change. So there's a passion there. The students, at least the ones I'm coming across in architectural engineering, are quite concerned about sustainability and the fact that buildings play such an important role in um, climate change and sustainability efforts and resource fair allocation of resources, they're passionate about their possibility of contributing here in terms of improving society as a whole. You know, we're talking architectural engineering students here. So I I always uh, have fun with this. I ask them questions like, well, tell me about your car. What year is it? What's the size of the engine? What kind of mileage you get? What's the state of repairs, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm almost, you know, Seven out of 10 of them can answer a lot of detailed questions about cars and their transportation systems. Then I start asking them, well, what kind of heating system do you have in your home? How efficient is that? How much energy do you use per square foot per year in your house? How does your house compare with other houses? What sort of cooling system do you use? Very few of them can actually answer detailed questions on that. So there's a cultural thing here. People pay more important to certain aspects of their life operations than they do others. And obviously, transportation systems have been sort of an American culture thing that almost comes second nature to kids now. Computer systems are kind of getting pretty close to that. But buildings as systems are not. Most of us recognize metrics like miles per gallon because we have to fill up our cars once a week. But we tend to pay a lot more attention to the aesthetics of our home versus the systems we don't see. Unless we've got really poor air conditioning systems, we might not notice their impact on our health, productivity, or energy efficiency. So how can we make the invisible visible? We need more than just a technical overhaul. We need a cultural shift. You know, if you take the breathing rate of a typical adolescent or a typical adult, they're breathing so many times a minute. They bring in so much air per breath. And if you calculate that over a day, how many pounds of air are they ingesting into their body? It comes out to be somewhere between 25 and 35 pounds a day. Now compare that to how much bottled water they drink and pay for every day. And that's one, two, three, or four bottles of of water, maybe a pound or two of water they drink every day. And they're willing to pay a big price for that. Just compare a gallon of purified water to a gallon of gasoline. And you ask them, well, okay, in your house, if you live 80% of your time when you're at home in your house or in some other building, how much would you pay for a fresh pound of air? 
Would it be a dollar, two dollars? How much would it be? Well, no, it's just automatically fresh, they assume. I said, yeah, well, people used to think water was automatically fresh as well. And now we're realizing that what we ingest into our bodies can cause long-term chronic problems. And certainly that's true of air. So why aren't we emphasizing purification of air and be willing to pay for it? So look, just overall, what do you think will change in the next five years a result of the research, the technology, and the shifting consumer sentiment in this space? I think there's going to be a really big push, at least I hope there is, as a result of this municipal benchmarking, climate change awareness, and now the awareness of the fact that indoor air quality can be a huge problem in terms of apparent disease transmission and more subtle chronic disease development. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to say, okay, we got to get the building as a whole right now. I think that's going to start with the building envelope. People are going to realize that if I make the envelope of my building, the walls and the roof and the, the windows right, and I build them so that they can really keep out the external environment when I want it to be kept out in terms of temperature and transmission, infiltration, et cetera, I can greatly reduce the amount of energy use in a building and at the same time greatly improve the indoor air quality. So I think there's a movement in, at least in the residential section, and it's moving into the commercial building sector now. How can I build a building that has a really high performance envelope? And how can I do that cost effectively? And how can I do that with certainty? So there's, there's a real possibility that this will then drive the evolution of buildings as a system. Because if I change the building envelope and get that right, then I can greatly reduce the amount of energy I spend for air conditioning or heating and spend up some reasonable amount of money on indoor air quality, humidity control, particle control, volatile organic carbon compounds control. And I'm dealing with less amount of air exchange, so I can do this at a cost-effective way. So now this is important for everyone because it, it'll change how we design our heating systems, our cooling systems, our air monitoring systems. I expect there will be a much more greater emphasis on real-time measurement of indoor air quality from the point of view of Accurate measurements of humidity, accurate measurements of particles, the sizes of particles, the types of particles, and that this eventually will lead to what we call demand control IAQ, indoor air quality. We have demand control ventilation now where you count the number of people in the building and you say, okay, I need to bring in this amount of outside air to keep the building, um, the air in the building fresh. I think in the future with all the sensors and information technology that's being developed, you'll see sensors that measure a great deal about the indoor environment in a building. And it can then can turn off and turn on equipment as it's needed to deal with the indoor environment. And that'll be a lot easier to do if I don't have to worry about huge infiltration losses through the, through the envelope. And I have a controlled way of predicting the energy use in the building and right-sizing the equipment. I think you've made the comment in the past that with these systems being so disparate, it's almost like it's almost like a symphony without a conductor, right? And I think that focus on the building envelope and maybe that focus on on the digital integration allows us to get a little bit of that coordination going. 
A lot of the problems right now in buildings in terms of energy efficiency is that we don't right-size the equipment. We oversize it. Why? Because of what we talked earlier. We don't have a really good modeling simulation system that can give us the results with certainty. So there's all this huge uncertainty on what's the heating load, what's the cooling load. Well, I don't know, but I don't want to be hot. I don't want to be cold. So I'm going to oversize the boiler. I'm going to oversize the air conditioning system just to be sure no one ever complains or no one's ever comfortable. That means we're running this stuff apart load all the time. It's like driving your car at 20 miles per hour all the time. You can't possibly get the miles per gallon you're supposed to get. People always ask, well, does this mean I'm going to have to spend more per square foot for my building? Maybe, maybe, not necessarily, because it's gone both ways when people have tried to do this, but you're going to make it up. You're going to make it up in your, your savings of energies. You're going to make it up in your measurable improvements of indoor air quality related to illnesses and diseases. I think, yes, we may spend a little bit more per square foot up front, but it'll be a lot less on life cycle cost overall. What do you spend for a car? For a car, you spend a, you know thousands of dollars per occupable space per square foot. For an airplane, you spend $100,000 per square foot of occupied space. For buildings, if you start talking two, $300 per square foot, people go ballistic. And yet, yes, the dangers aren't as apparent, maybe as in an automobile or an airplane, or um, emissions from a manufacturing site, but they're just as real. We just learn to live with this sort of indoor environments and this sort of energy utilization. Well, that's got to change. One last question for you here. What do you tell your family and friends about the things that they can do now to improve their own spaces? I think the main thing is for them to take a look at and maybe actually get a few things into their house, like a simple measurement of temperature and humidity, and then look at how they can make sure that that humidity level for a given temperature always stays below 55 percent, 55 or 60 percent. Students always ask me, what's the biggest problem in indoor air quality in residential homes? And it's, it's humidity. And if there's any spot where the humidity can condense on a surface, something's going to grow. And that growing something is not going to be good. It's going to create some allergens or some other toxins that you may not notice over the long term, but they are accumulating and they are, they are going to affect somebody. So first of all, control your temperature and humidity. In the 70s, what did people do to try to save energy and, and reduce on infiltration? They put plastic on their windows and taped their windows up. What happened? Humidity levels went up and then five, 10 years later, we noticed there's an epidemic increase in asthma and other types of respiratory diseases. It was because we said, oh, there's a simple solution. We don't have to treat the building as a system. So if people want to improve their indoor air quality, make sure you have an HVAC system that's controlling humidity. Temperature is important. We all know that. But humidity is the sort of unseen, real big issue here. Jim is a dynamic force in shifting public perception within the industry of healthy and efficient spaces and his holistic approach is driving the technological transformation that's going to impact each and every one of our lives for the better. Like us at Train Technologies, Jim looks to the industries that are doing this well. And if we continue to invest and collaborate, the sky is truly the limit. 
You've been listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies. I'm Rasha Hassani. For more information on our conversation with Jim Fryhut, see the show notes in your podcast app. Don't forget to hit subscribe to hear new episodes. And join us next week when we'll be speaking to Bill Sisson from the World Business Council on Sustainable Development about his commitment to create better outcomes for businesses that also deliver benefits for the health and well-being of society and the planet. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.